0: Welcome back. Uh, Let me first introduce myself. My my name is Joel Darvas. I'm a senior fellow at at Bruegel, and I'm very pleased to chair our next session, which is a bit long title, but we have a great panel (coughs) to fill this title with a lot of interesting subjects. So the title of the panel is Innovation, Labour Market Transformation and Social Economic Reconstruction in Europe and Japan. And uh, so the previous session was more about um, innovation in in Europe and and Japan. And in this session, uh, we will move toward discussing a number of issues also related to labor market uh, developments. And we have four excellent speakers in the panel. i briefly introduce them alphabetically, and then we'll let you know in what order they will speak. So first in in the alphabet is, is Jonathan Cave, who is a professor at uh, the University of of Warwick. Then uh, Yochi um, Machu Bayashi, if I'm not mistaken that much, (coughs) who is a professor at the the Kobe University, but you may know, or you should know, that he was a visiting fellow at Brugel, and he was also a visiting fellow at at Harvard University. (coughs) Then we have Georgios Petropoulos, who is uh, a research fellow at 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 Brugel. and last but not least, on the on the alphabet, <coughs> uh, Kazafumi Yugami, who is <coughs> uh, associate professor at at the Kobe University, and considering the, the topics that the speakers will will speak about, um, uh, we saw that the best to to start with with Georgios, <coughs> who will speak about uh, the Lisbon strategy and, and Europe 2020. <coughs> uh, then we follow by by, by Yoshi, uh, then Mr. Yugami, and, and last but not least, Jonathan Cape. And I ask each panelist to limit their remarks to 15, maybe a little bit more than 15, but certainly no more than, than, than 20 minutes. And after each session, we will have a short discussion, uh, mainly for clarifying and understanding. And at the end, I hope to have uh, a much longer and more general discussion on all the topics which, which were raised in the panel. <coughs> so Georgios, the, the floor is yours.
1: Thank you, Zolt. Uh, So I'm going to talk about, uh, I will focus on innovation. And um, as you may know, we have a very uh, nice strategy in place that uh, focuses on uh, Europe uh, in uh, uh, 2020. Uh, But this is not the first strategy that uh, came up uh, for uh, um, promoting economic growth. Um, This is a 10-year strategy uh, that aims uh, at um, smart, sustainable, inclusive growth. But the key elements of this strategy is the greater coordination um, of national and European policy. And um, it is really key because it shows that to some extent we learn from the past strategies we applied and it didn't have the anticipated results like the Lisbon strategy that was introduced in 2000 uh, 2000 and had as a target to make uh, Europe the most competitive and dynamic uh, knowledge-based economy in the world, capable of sustainable economic growth with more and better jobs and greater social cohesion by 2010. And um, I think it is uh, valuable to look back and see why this target was not achieved. In 2010, I was uh, in the middle of a very severe ca- crisis. Um, mic- microeconomic indices uh, were doing very bad. Uh, so um, what, uh, what can we learn by this example of a strategy that didn't manage to, uh, to fulfill its targets? Before that, let me uh, summarize very briefly uh, some of the targets of 2020 strategy. 75% uh, of uh, employment, and uh, th- 3% of uh, EU GDP to be invested in R&D, that was also a target in Lisbon agenda that um, d- we didn't manage to achieve by 2010, um, and fighting poverty and social inclusion, but I think a very nice element of the strategy is the specific national targets. And of course, m- some other main uh, st- uh, strategies involved. So it is clearly that Lisbon uh, strategy failed in its target in um, almost every dimension, uh, like uh, GDP growth rate, employment rate, um, and uh, R&D spending. But uh, we should not ignore uh, the microeconomic developments in globalised world that we experienced the previous decade, and also that the fact that... Um, we had some at least improvement of the main index, uh, indices by two th- from 2000 to 2010. So what did go wrong? Um, I mean, some of the reasons, many of them were identified by the midterm uh, evaluation report uh, um, by Koch in 2004, and some of them, they were also mentioned by uh, the SAPI report. And first, the first... Um, thing we observe if we go back and check the objectives is that it was an overloaded uh, agenda. It was very ambitious. Um, So from the beginning, it was very challenging to achieve these uh, goals. Um, No account was taken of the different initial basis and capabilities of the member states and how to meet them which brings also into discussion that we need to have some national targets that go beyond the general EU uh, targets because of the various and many uh, asymmetries between European member states. Um, We had a a lack of determined political action, especially when we started seeing by the uh, mid-term report uh, that things were not going on track and uh, we should uh, spend some more time defining the governance of uh, the agenda. Um, Poor coordination across member states, sometimes conflicting and shifting priorities, conflicting especially from the eyes of member states, and external uh, factors like the U.S. uh, stock market bubble, September 11 uh, attack in U.S. that uh, reshape um, um, the world, uh, the, global, the global world as so we were thinking about it. Slow rate of ICT uh, I- diffusion were some of the other reasons for this, um, let's say, not achievement of the goals. Uh, an interesting um, angle was the one that uh, Pisani Ferri uh, mentioned by bringing exactly in the heart of the problem the incentives of member states uh, to, pro- to uh, invest, uh, to... Uh, implement the reforms, and uh, the the argument was that uh, probably uh, voters, European voters, European citizens were not not informed adequately well about the gains from these reforms, and also um, in terms uh, of positive cross-border externalities, um, there were lack of incentives that there should be better connected between different member states. Then the financial crisis arrived, and the program was out of track. So some valuable lessons that you can learn from the Lisbon strategy to the Europe 20 is that governance, it's a very vital part of the agreement and it is the only way to improve the implementation, uh, to have more effective implementation. Um, national targets can uh, add transparency because they give a clear idea to each country what it has to achieve what reforms should implement in order to to live to the, to, to, the uh, to satisfy the target but also and in this way you improve uh, incentives because we can have somehow some externality mechanisms applying for uh, good uh, reform um, implementation in one member state to the other And also, we observe the more enhanced role of European Parliament and civil society, so we have a more, um, let's say, um, uh, decentralized um, way to promote the goods of um, this agenda. Uh, Of course, the crisis itself can uh, lead to closer coordination and surveillance, uh, surveillance especially to the banking uh, sector, and that is good if we want to move forward with such a big goal that uh, requires coordination but on the other side created a lot of frictions south central europe that uh, create challenges that need to be overcome and uh, this is something uh, we should be very careful Uh, but what about the goals on innovation for the eu uh, europe 20. So if we look um, at business enterprise, the dotted line refers uh, to the percentage of uh, GDP on R&D expenditures by European businesses in EU 28. Um, We see uh, that, um, for example, Japan performs much better than Europe. Uh, And um, if we uh, go to the gross domestic expenditures on R&D, not only the business ones, we see that um, uh, by 2014, Europe approaches uh, the 2% uh, of GDP, which is um, ma- it's still uh, much below the 3%, especially if we take into account how these uh, curves increases over the years. We see only a small increase. And we could say that the 3% target of 2020 then is very, um, uh, very ambitious in these terms unless we manage uh, to induce much more um, um, R&D expenditures in some way in this. And the key observation also is see Japan that uh, does very well, but by comparing the business enterprise R&D and the overall uh, um, expenditure R&D, we see that in Japan, for example, business R&D expenditures is um, uh, much, uh, has much, uh, much uh, higher percentage in GDP. And probably that is also the answer for the European economy to induce more business R&D uh, expenditures. So if we decompose the R&D expenditures, um, and in I present here two graphs, uh, the first one uh, referred to uh, R&D by d- different sources of funding, um, we see um, that against, again I will use as a measure of comparison Japan and U28 given the event, um, so we will see that um, Japan uh, does, is much more active in industry and uh, industry-funding f- sources than EU28. Um, only Germany from Europe, let's say, does quite uh, better than the other states in, uh, with this respect. Uh, we see that the government sector is slightly more involved in EU28, but um, what we see in Japan, and this is very interesting, is that we have sources of funding uh, other sources of funding, from higher education, private non-profit organization, that this is not so strong in Europe. Uh, in contrast, in Europe, we have uh, more funding opportunities come from abroad, while in Japan that is not so much the case. Um, if we uh, focus on the distribution of uh, the expenditures by um, who uh, uh, performs them, uh, then um, we will see that um, Uh, Again, Japan does much better in the business enterprise sector, as it was clear from the previous uh, side, Uh, but uh, Europe uh, does uh, relatively better uh, in the higher education sector. Um, So um, this is something, a level of comparison that uh, we can keep in mind to see the different structures of how R&D expenditures are financed in both countries. Of course, industrial policies play a role. Japan was um, doing really well in that. Europe, uh, in the past, in the past decade, not so much. But we have seen uh, an increase uh, in European countries. I don't have a figure for EU28 here, but for example, we see how France uh, performs much better and how um, tax incentives uh, do better. So this graph uh, represents the tax support as uh, percentage of total. Um, government support for business R&D. Uh, so in tax incentives, the, the gap between Japan and central European countries closes, and, and this is um, a nice example of how um, industrial policies can help to this business R&D direction that Europe is missing. Now, um, a, a very um, a very, uh, a very different figure between Europe and Japan is the very low unemployment rate that Japan has. It's really unrealistic for the European standards. Now, if we go to total researchers, uh, per thousand of uh, total employment is the measure here, we'll see uh, that Japan does quite well. Uh, but the gap between uh, Euros, um, uh, Europe and uh, Japan is closing. Um, especially with France but also in average um, but uh, and if we go to real GDP per hour worked uh, we see that um, uh, Europe 28 does better than Japan. So while we have a lot of employment, while we have many researchers, um, how is this translated to real GDP per hour worked? And then we see uh, the opposite pictures on the figures that we had before between Europe and Japan. And that is a nice issue to explore uh, why is this happening and also to see how it can improve from terms of Europe this trend to have even more upward um, movement as time passes. I mean, let's go also to the digital sector, which um, is the future. And then we see that um, uh, this is, uh, by the way, I don't mention this, is um, uh, a global uh, platform database that uh, it's the first systematic effort to map all the platforms exist all over the world. And um, this is from 2015. And what we see is that um, the initiatives Uh, for uh, digital platforms that can connect people together, they can induce e-commerce, they can induce growth, Um, is something that um, uh, we see Asia very strong on that, and North America. Europe does not uh, do very well at the moment. So a key question is, uh, if we want to have business R&D, how can drive business R&D in this uh, direction by the entry of Uh, of companies, but also uh, by increasing their market capitalization, the scale-up effect that uh, Scott mentioned in the first panel. Um, also, in terms of employee, uh, employees, uh, that could be um, an increase of employment in Europe if we can bring uh, such uh, developments in our area. Of course, a challenge to do that is that we live in a globalised world. Uh, many of the digital platforms operate uh, in Europe. Uh, they have their origin in Asia or North America. So that um, creates uh, an interesting environment from a policy point of view, how to induce more uh, European investments in this area and creation and development of digital platforms. But um, if we want to really look at the incentives uh, to invest in R&D, we should definitely not restrict our attention to the macro tendencies that you observe uh, in the markets, but also to look at the micro micro foundations, incentives for R&D. Uh, We have, for example, the inverted U relationship um, by some academics, uh, which clearly shows that competition probably at some cases is not good for innovation. The question then is how incentives by firms are affected in these sectors, and how by increasing competitiveness in the market, which can bring additional benefits, uh, we could make also are and stronger by multidimensional policies maybe that do not focus only in increasing product market competition, but also um, are are combined with measures that uh, they may uh, alleviate uh, markets and firms from the potential negative effects of the increasing competition. Financial constraints, for example, is something that uh, we could, in theory, perceive that it becomes a uh, more um, severe problem uh, the in a highly competitive markets because lack of funding. Uh, then... Um, in Europe, we have um, a lot of debt financing and in ICT, in digital markets, we see that venture capital financing is the recipe uh, to, uh, for companies to grow. So how we can induce uh, more venture capital financing in Europe? Uh, intellectual property and ICT is a big issue. Given that I don't have time, I will not um, mention uh, many things on that. But we have some uh, rela- uh, some. Uh, um, studies that uh, they basically view intellectual property as obstacles for further investments and innovation, like the Besant and masking one. Um, Industrial and competition policy uh, can be complements or substitutes. Recent research, they incline to consider um, more as complements, especially in markets with high competition. And uh, that means that we can have more coordinated policies with both uh, competition and industrial objectives that can promote R&D. And um, I will close by saying that... um, the impact of disruptive technologies is still uh, under study, especially under different regulatory frameworks. We should continue investigating uh, how disruptive technologies can bring growth without harming already existed uh, business and uh, consumers. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much, Georgios, for from, from starting from this failing EU targets to, to comparing many interesting aspects of Japan and European and also US uh, innovation and, and research and development <coughs> issues. Now let's let's open the floor for let's, let's just a few minutes uh, for a few clarifying questions and, and comments. <coughs> yes, please.
2: <coughs> I found your statistics about the digital platform very interesting. Could you maybe explain a bit more how, how you calculated this? or what are the basis of uh, your uh, calculation? Maybe you show it again and explain how you arrived at the figures which allowed to uh, make this uh, clarification that North America has this high number of digital platforms and Asia is second. So if you simply could uh, go a bit back to this and explain it a bit more in detail.
1: If we can have the slides back, please. So um, I think uh, the the this um, database uh, basically it's an initiative that started. Uh, uh, almost five years ago, and had as an objective to map all the digital platforms uh, that exist all over the world. Uh, so it is uh, an American initiative, and um, it is um, there were many uh, joint um, collaborations between uh, researchers in Asia, Europe, and U.S. for developing uh, this uh, map. Uh, so the first measure... Um, can I have the... Can we go to the end?
2: Yeah.
1: No. Um, so um, the mapping is uh, just an account of uh, platforms that they are uh, in North American Asian and European markets. Uh, Then by by the account of them, uh, they look specifically on the market capitalization of uh, each company in order to uh, develop the aggregate uh, figure and also to employment record of these companies uh, in order to come in the uh, employee's record. And uh, the um, account stop, uh, uh, it was published in 2015. So uh, by the beginning of 2015 was the updated statistics uh, that uh, refer to uh, the graph I presented from this global database of um, uh, online platforms. So mm-hmm. it is just mapping accounting, uh, which allows for further um, statistics on um, on characteristics of these platforms mm-hmm. that they were accounted, of course. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. We,
0: I mean, we apologize, there is a technical problem. Um, is there any other, other question or, or follow-up, quick quick remark? If if no, then then it's my pleasure
3: to ask uh, <coughs> your chief. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Many thanks to all. Um, it's my pleasure to be here. So I don't have enough time. So, but maybe I would like to talk about the stagnation, investment, and innovation in Europe and Japan using some empirical studies with my colleague Hagi Iwara. Yes. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. You maybe hey, maybe, maybe. yeah. Maybe. You need to point it okay, out. okay. 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 Yeah. Over there. Over there.
2: There. There.
3: Okay, very wonderful innovation, and maybe <laughs> last last year's conference, we talk about the Bruegel and Kobe, the secure stagnation in Japan, Europe, and okay. okay. So, what is secular stagnation? Maybe eight years after the collapse of Lehman Brothers, the global financial classes persistent in the world economic recovery seems insecure. And maybe, to so, you know that Larry Summer is one of the most influential economists in Herbert and revived Robin Hansen's maybe 100 years ago concept of the secular stagnation to explain economic weakness in the U.S. since 2008. but. In my view or in Berger's view, maybe this may maybe the greater for the, especially in Europe and GPM, because oh, they face popular low growth, popular growth slow technical innovation and low demand, low private shrinks uh, private investment, especially corporate investment. So one of the key topics is corporate investment. So maybe you can see from this figure, uh, this is a picture of a private investment in Europe, Euro area since two thousand. 2000 to 2015 and you can see from this figure that since 2000 there is a remarkable tendency to shrink their private investment Germany Greece Poland, and many many major european countries and especially this figure all the same phenomenon and i have to skip the japanese case because most of you know that the japan's private investment shrinks dramatically since 2000 yes By the way, what is the driving force, the key factor of business cycle and economic growth? Of course, this is corporate investment because uh, corporate investment stimulated from demand side and corporate investment accumulate from the supply side and economic growth stimulate. So the corporate investment is very important, I think. So by the way, what is the key determinant or key factor of corporate investment? Maybe this is expected profitability. For example, the president of Volkswagen or president of Toshiba, maybe they have a lot of information about the future population, technological progress, or energy price, and future demand in the European or Japan or all over the world. So expected, not current profit is very key factor. Okay, maybe expected profitability defined as Future profit per machine. So in 2016, 17, 18, 19, 22 to 22, 22, 22, 22. So, but I have, we have a one big serious problem because it is impossible to observe future profit. We cannot see the future profit. So, therefore, we Economists calculate, we have to calculate proxy variables for expected profit variables using current data set. So in my view, or many um, econometricians knows that in the textbooks macroeconomics, economics, we call it tolerance average queue or marginal queue, most of you know. And then today's conference, or today's report. Taiji and I try to calculate Turbin's marginal q using huge farm-level data in Europe and Japan. This picture is very nostalgic. And maybe last year's conference, the conference was held in the third floor. But this year, the conference is fourth floor. I was very surprised, and I'm impressed by the wonderful innovation in Bruce Brugel, I think, yeah. Okay, um, maybe the last conference, we tried to show some pictures, just a, little, a few European countries, but today, this year, so we can see around European countries case. So here we go. First is Germany. So this is a picture of distribution here since 2006, to 2014, and there are so many companies, so distribution is asymmetric, so the rail line shows a median value, not average value, okay? And uh, 0.65 million the value of marginal Q in 2013, okay? So you can see from these figures so there, is, there is a remarkable tendency to decline in tendency in the German companies, carbon French, okay? Let's go. Okay, a little bit high compared with Germany. Are there any people who came with French? So if you have some questions or comments after the discussion what the lunchtime, let's talk more. So, okay. And then how about your country? UK. Oh, very high. UK is a remarkable tendency to grow in tendency of marginal Q, and the value of marginal Q in 2013 is 0.79. I don't I don't have enough um, enough information in the UK, so please give my use of information from the cave, professor cave, and okay, the Ireland and Sweden and Finland and Belgium, this country 0.4 are a little bit small. I don't know I don't know why, but okay, I have to go. And the Switzerland is a little bit small, but. Switzerland is an industry country, but I don't, I don't know, you know, but maybe Switzerland, the, the value of the marginal Q is a little bit small compared to the UK, Japan, Germany, or French, okay. And Italy, sorry, Italy is a uh, little small compared to the other Central European countries or North, uh, Western European countries, major Western countries, but it's, it's interesting, Spain, Portugal, Sorry to your <laughs> the the is very small. Oh yeah yeah, and uh, okay. And Poland, Poland is a little bit high. Maybe um, in in our, in our research, some major Eastern European countries such as Poland, Czech, Hungary, they show a little bit high value of marginal pure except, except profit. <coughs> There, maybe, in my view, there seems to be a very important uh, information about our research visa, so let's talk more about our discussion. Bulgaria, Czech, Hungary, and okay, Japan, Japan. How about Japan? Japan is uh, no change or uh, slowdown of original Q in 2012, so we can see from this figure that the value of the original Q is 0.6, nearly uh, French or uh, Germany. Okay, we can summarize this information into one picture. So maybe so you can see from this figure that maybe in common feature as a common feature. So in Europe, most of countries there is a shrink of the marginal profits, expect- profit especially in labor sharks and great shocks. Okay, and here this is the picture. this picture is very interesting. So as I said earlier. So in the case of UK, the marginal curio profit in UK grew, was growing, growing, growing. My understanding is that Prime Minister Cameron decided to hold a referendum on national election in January 2013. Now, maybe surprisingly, <laughs> at that time, the UK's economy was not bad. From this figure, so why Cameron decided referendum? So I don't know where. About. So let's talk more. Um, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. Uh, except profitability in Europe have a tendency to decrease since the in common the mid to uh, 2000, and there is no visible sign of recovering. Except the UK, um, it's likely that secular stagnation in Europe will continue. And, um, okay, I have to skip. Um, this is a very interesting picture that we have, we can summarize this information to one map. So dark line, dark, dark color shows high profit rate and light color shows maybe small or uh, medium size expected profit. From this picture, so maybe surprisingly or unfortunately non euro members <laughs> shows high marginal profit and uh, profit um, of, of course in the French and Germany and some other countries shows high uh, relatively high marginal queue but in the South European countries and um, then okay Maybe so there seems to be some factors which affect the discrepancy, for example, productivity, population growth, economic system, two, 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 two. so okay. maybe there are a lot of information in this map. Maybe. I think it's, it's very interesting. Okay. By the way, what is the driving force to move expected profitability or marginal Q. Maybe productivity is a key factor of expected profitability. So Hagiwara and I try to calculate TFP and then we try to some very simple panel regulation in dependent variable with marginal Q and dependent variable TFP. And better show the impact of TFP on marginal Q. Surprisingly, Germany shows a very high value of beta, and France, Japan, Spain, Italy shows a little bit small values. So, maybe in my conclusion, the expected profitability is seen by the TFP and major European countries, and in particular, Germany and France, two of the greatest economies in the European region, should be the First thing the initiative to accelerate the innovation, especially in the three, four, uh, you know, the experience in France is very important, I think. And another but there is an, an, an anxiety. Maybe uh, yesterday afternoon, Koji Nakamura, he belonged to Bank of Japan, and my close friend had a chance to discuss the European Commission and they ZZZ says that European economy is covered with fog, very deep fog of uncertainty, such as Brexit, and financial fragility, and so maybe to remove uncertainty, which covers expect profit for a private in-business, also indispensable to escape from the stagnation. Of course, GPN is no exception. So the time is all set, and I have to blow the curtain. Many thanks. thanks.
0: Thank you very much. Let me ask the first qualifying question. I mean, when you you had a regression, on you regressed on this marginal queue yeah, yeah. On, on on TFP, and you had country-specific. So was it across firms or or for particular country? So what I, I and first T? One, first one,
3: yeah,
0: yeah. So let's say for Germany... I- so how can you have a separate value for Germany and, and United Kingdom? So I is a firm in a country? Yes. yes. Or, so you I run this is. regression separately for each of these yes, countries?
3: For each country. So okay. For example, Germany, there is uh, more than uh, so, so, many, so many companies. So I means company, the number of companies. So in Germany, so UK, OK. Also.
0: What is your measure of TFP
3: here? TFP, um, a production approach. So using financial data, you uh, know, data set. Okay. Total factor probability using production approach, you know, the, the residual of, you know, something. Do you have any comments? No, okay. Yes,
4: please. Um, just a comment that's sort of based on the use of Tobin's Q or Tobin's Marginal Q. Yeah. The world has changed somewhat since Tobin uh, calculated it or formed his expectations, and there are sort of three things that we might want to consider behind the results that use uh, Tobin's Q. The first is uh, the changing sectoral balance, I think. I'm sorry? The changing sectoral balance. That contributes sectors to, the yeah, the, the different sectors in which the firms operate, for example, that are traded, yeah, and Sub- in particular for the UK financial services. Okay. right? They're, they're quite distinct and the services that they provide are, or at least were in 2013, uh, deriving their real economy impetus from many European countries. They just happen to be hubbed in London and so they get counted against the London account. The second point is that the, just as with let's say, credit default swap prices, and so on. This is the market's valuation of expected uh, profitability. And there is rather a strong rational expectations assumption behind it that the reason why the markets are valuing these firms has to do with the firm's expected future performance. And that view, in a world of CAPM and OPM and black shawls, may not be wholly wholly tenable. And finally, there's this issue of competitive health, that in some of those sectors and some of those economies, the link between TFP in sort of real terms and profits of the firms may not be exact, because a firm in a monopolized or cartelized industry will be earning a higher rate of return, but it isn't necessarily something one should be uh, proud of or happy with. With regard to Poland, it's possible that Gershonkron has a partial explanation, which is that the new Eastern European countries, having had not so much investment in the previous generations of technologies and product definition, may already be starting at a higher level. And in a lot of other progress indicators, the fact that they had so little to begin with actually counts in their favor because they don't have the drag effect of that sort of... Uh, Yeah, hangover of the the old times. And then the final thing is it would be really fascinating to take these numbers, particularly the distribution of Tobin's Q above and below the median, which I noticed was more symmetric, for example, in countries like Ireland, and try to interpret that in a way that we could bring it then to issues of labor share and income distribution inequality, because there is this kind of rough argument that inequality is the price that one has to pay for growth. And here, I think we have a, a data set that could tell us whether that is true anymore. So, uh, thank you for bringing. It
3: to yeah, many thanks, Kees, and uh, many thanks for the very nice information and many nice sessions. Uh, first is, uh, the maybe Poland information. Um, I I learn a lot, and thanks, and firstly, in the case of UK, maybe there are some sectors which are not manufacturing sector, but in this case, we do not conclude financial sectors.
4: Oh, oh, okay.
3: So maybe non-manufacturing sector, may on service sectors. So, so so we don't include financial sectors ah, because right, okay. it's very difficult to calculate marginal queue in the financial sector because yes. the capital key is very small. So <laughs> I don't know. That. And another question, the second question is very important. I think when there maybe how sort of how 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 expect the future future market for future economy. So expectation specification is very crucial I think so rational expectation is it good for us <laughs> it's okay I don't know where but maybe so we follow the a branch methods in econometric so in the Abel and and their information and their specification is based on expectation rational expectation are so I don't have any other good method so I think it's my f- future research I think very much. thank you there was a question there
0: please <coughs>
2: The question relates to the topic uh, Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Kaff has mentioned. Uh, if you calculate this uh, top in queue, uh, how do you have uh, reflected about the different role of the capital market and also the different type of financing of companies? If you l- look to some of the key companies in Germany, like Bosch, for example, they are not on the capital market, uh, in this sense, to use the capital market uh, as a value which you need uh, to use it if you calculate Tobin's Q is a bit difficult if the financing structures of uh, the economies are very different from more bank based uh, countries to more capital market oriented countries in Europe.
3: Capital market means stock market, okay? Yes. Well, in this calculation, we don't use stock price. If you use stock bias, we call average Mm Q. But in the case of average Q, there are some noisy factors such as bubble price and so on. So in this case we we use marginal Q using current profit. So So we can escape the structure of capital markets. Okay.
0: Thank you, uh, if there are no further questions, then Mr. Yugami, the floor is yours.
5: Thank you to person, uh, good morning, I'm Kazuhami Yugami, I'm with Kobe University, and I'm very happy to be able to talk to you today. Uh, today, I'd like to talk about the impact of techn- technological changes on labor market in Europe and Japan. Especially, I'd like to focus on the development of ICT on the wage distribution and employment growth in European countries and Japan by the knowledge of previous studies. Okay, I will show uh, the outline of my presentation. Firstly, I will overview the stylized fact of uh, about the recent changes of employment clauses and the wage distribution in European countries and Japan. Here, the many researchers uh, referred the recent trend uh, as to uh, polarization in the labor market. Secondly, I will uh, explain the underlying mechanism of the polarization in the labor market. And after that, I will uh, discuss the empirical evidences uh, in the European countries and Japan. And finally, uh, I will uh, mention some future issues and uh, the tentative imp- policy implications. Okay, uh, firstly, I will overview the recent trend of wage distribution and labor demand in Europe and Japan. In terms of wage distribution, many researchers have found that uh, the relative wage growth for upper and lower tail of wage distribution over the last two decades. And this trend sometimes uh, referred to as wage polarization. In addition, these wage wage polarization have been accompanied by systematic non-monotonic shifts in the composition of uh, Employment uh, across occupations. That is, uh, there has been an increase in well-paid skilled jobs and in low-paid least skilled jobs, and at the same time, a decrease in the middleing jobs. Uh, the phenomena called uh, the phenomena is called job polarization. This polarization in the labor markets are found in many developed countries, including the US, European countries, and Japan. Uh, this is uh, the, about uh, European countries. Uh, for, the, uh, for the European countries, uh, Professor Goose from the University of Luba is actively working on this research topic. For, For example, Goose, Manning, and uh, Salomon 2009 used the harmonized EU LFS labor force survey of 16 European countries, including Belgium, the UK, France, Germany, and so on. And they examined the occupational employment changes in these countries between 1993 uh, and uh, 2006. As you can see in the figure, The high and low paying occupation, measured by their 1994 log wage, increased their employment shares. But the the occupation paying close to the mean wage decreased their employment share during the same period. We have a similar study on the Japanese labor markets. For example, Ikenaga and Kampai shows a slight polarization between 1970 to 2005. They used population census from 1970 to 2005 to show that there is a decline of middle paid occupation and maintenance of employment and low waste occupations. Uh, at the same time, employment growth was mainly induced, induced by the highest occupation. And more or less, this phenomenon of job, job polarization after the 1990s is found in other developed countries. Well, here, uh, uh, how can we explain the phenomenon of polarization in the labor market? Most economic analysis of change in wage structure and skill uh, differences are built on the idea of skill bias of, skill bias of technical change. In other words, the relative demand for skills is linked to the skill bias of technical change. Among them, the skill bias of technical change hypothesis predicts that the demand for skilled jobs is rising relative to that for unskilled jobs, resulting in the wage growth depending on skill level. And the hypothesis could explain the rapid growth in wage inequality during the 1990s 1980s, especially between college graduates and non-college graduates. However, the problem is that the SBTC hypothesis cannot close in wage and demand for low wage occupation, which was observed in the, uh, since the 1990s. Due to the short, this shortcomings of the traditional SBTC hypothesis, alternative analytical framework has been developed which is often referred as to task-based framework. According to Mogul and Autor, 2011, there is a clear distinction between worker skill and a task. A task means, in, the, in this framework, a task means a unit of work activity that produces output. On the other hand, a skill means workers' endowment of capabilities for performing various tasks. And in the production process, skills applied to task produce output. And the and the and in 2003 first developed uh, this framework and uh, they conclude that uh, technological development have enabled information and communications technologies to perform the core jobs, previously performed middle skilled workers. And this, is, this caused uh, substantial changes in the return to certain types of skills and measurable shift in this assignment of skills to tasks. And in terms of empirical studies, task measures is a key variable. This table shows the three, three large categories and five middle categories of task measures that are used in the many studies. Among them, the recent studies focus on routine task intensity routine task intensity is consists of as you can see uh, uh, importance of repeating the same tasks important being exact or accurate and so on and this is typical for uh, the. Uh, this is uh, typically applied to the clerical office work and, uh, and machinery uh, workers and the study uh, examined the uh, causal relationship between routine task intensity and the employment growth by occupation level. In terms of, sorry, uh, for the uh, European countries, Goose and Manning and Salmons, 2014 examines the relationship between the task intensity and the uh, task intensity of each occupation and its employment growth. This table shows uh, uh, their their basic result. As you can see, the routine task intensity is high for middling occupation. Uh, And uh, uh, the middling occupation decreases uh, their employment share between 1993 to 2010. As for Japan, the Kenaga and also shows uh, uh, that the share of routine task input in occupation has declined over the past five decades in Japan. Uh, Here is the regression results of uh, employment growth based on the European Labor Force Survey. And the results show the statistically significant negative effects of routine task intensity on its employment growth. In other words, there is a shift uh, in relative demand away from occupations that are more routine. And taking these results, the are it, it called the recent technological change, routine bias technological change, and uh, often referred to as RBTC. The RBTC is found in Japan as well. This table shows the regression results of the changes in task intensity by occupation level. As a result, the real uh, real non-ICT stock have replaced uh, routine routine labor tasks and uh, ICT capital uh, stock reinforces the tendency in Japan. Okay, uh, here I will summarize uh, uh, the findings so far. In the European countries, the technology is becoming more intense in the use of non-routine tasks concentrated in high-paid And low-paid service jobs, at the expense of non-routine tasks. uh, sorry, routine tasks concentrated in the manufacturing and clerical workers. Uh, Similarly, in Japan, uh, the the introduction of ICT capital probably uh, accelerated both the increase in non-routine task inputs and decrease in the routine task inputs. so far, uh, I have focused on the effect of biased technological change on wage distribution and labor demand as a whole. However, the task-based framework can be applied to other aspects of wage differentials. For example, in U.S. and uh, Japan, some researchers have found that the growth in returns to abstract task Explained in explained the increase in wage inequality across college majors for college graduates. In addition, as for the uh, gender wage differentials, Brakenspiess' owner uh, concludes that the relative decline in routine task inputs and the relative increase in abstract task inputs among women explain the substantial fraction of the of the closing in the in West Germany. Eventually, in order to clarify who is replaced by the new technology, we should address the relationship between job task intensity and workers' skills. So I and my colleague, my colleague and I conducted a small-sized web survey to measure task intensity by individual level. And examine the relationship between workers' characteristics and uh, uh, their task intensity. In the U.S., uh, the professor Alter from m- MIT uh, has already been working on this uh, topic. But unfortunately, I have m- not found uh, uh, the s- similar examination in Europe and Japan so far. This table shows uh, uh, the regression results of each uh, of three tasks intensity for individual level, on her or his characteristics. This is very preliminary exercise at present, uh, but uh, the results show that uh, the intensity of abstract task, um, which is is shown in column one and column two, individual job mainly depends on occupations but uh, female workers is, uh, female's low use of uh, individual, uh, female low use of abstract task persists after we control for the uh, occupation and uh, other human capital uh, variables. As for the routine task and uh, non-routine manual tasks, uh, measures of human capital used in this regression estimation. In particular, higher education and uh, years of labor market experience are significant predictors of within and as well as between uh, occupation variation in job tasks. Okay, so these results show that uh, higher education and job training are important for the worker in the in more, lap, more rapid close, uh, rapid change of uh, technological progress in, in this area. Era. That is uh, the ordinary uh, conclusion, but uh, uh, this is my, uh, th- that's all my presentation. Thank you very much for your kind attention.
0: Um, thank you very much, Mr. Yugami, also for, for keeping the time now let me let me have a quick quick question um, most of the evidence you showed uh, was evidence in the pre-crisis period so so you also emphasize very clearly the starting from the 1980s up to let's say 2009 or, or 2005 in, in the case of Japan but if we if you look at labor market development since the crisis then what we can see at least for the U.S. and Europe, I'm not sure about Japan, but in U.S. and Europe, only jobs with, with tertiary education has increased, and in fact, you know, jobs with, with lower qualification have declined. The number of those has, has declined quite significantly and, and rapidly. So so we also found this, this middling hypothesis as support for that in, in Europe, with a little bit different technique. But, but again, most of these uh, developments I think come out from the data in the pre-crisis period, why since then, both related to the crisis, also perhaps due to an acceleration of, of, of technological change, um, things may have evolved differently. So uh, probably you are not not able to comment that because data is unfortunately <laughs> lagging a lot. But I just wanted to highlight that, that uh, we may have we may have a new chapter since let's say in the in the past five six
5: or seven years
0: yeah, please if you wish please,
5: please. Yeah. Yeah, please thank you for your comment and uh, yes uh, these, uh, these studies uh, mainly based on in the, the data uh, for the period of um, before the crisis mm. so the uh, interpretation. The so pre- interpretation will change the by using another and after the crisis, uh, the data after the crisis. So, but the, I would like to say the I would like to speak and I would like to present the long, uh, middle or long term change, uh, long term and structural change uh, uh, occurred by the technological progress in the developed countries in this presentation. But the uh, Yeah, uh, and uh, in the future, the technology, uh, my my presentation uh, is, uh, my presentation concludes that uh, the new technology uh, replaced the middle occupation in the the last two decades, but uh, now the AI and so on, the high, more, uh, um, another technological change is occurred, and uh, these change, these technological changes, um, have potential and will probably substitute the uh, one um, substitute the, the abstract tasks in the future. Uh, so, so yes, uh, this is a, a, my presentation is based on the. Uh, previous studies, yeah, before the crisis. So sorry. Uh, and thank you very much for comment. Okay. Thank you.
0: Are there any other quick comments or, or questions? Yes, please.
6: Yes, uh, you had the question on your table statistics before implications. Um, yeah, the explanation power of your model seems much uh, higher for the last column, the manual task, than for the other one. No. The R-square, I mean, the, you think it's enough power in your model, or? R-square, yeah.
4: Mm. Thank you for your question. The, Could you
5: switch oh, off the thank you. Thank you for your question. Yes, uh, the R-square is very low. And uh, yeah, uh, then, uh, there is a, uh, another uh, potential, potential determinant of the uh, task intensity and variety of the variation of task intensity but uh, yeah this is the first exercise for uh, to investigate the determinant and re- or relationship between workers demographic characteristics and the task intensity and uh, the, this exercise is uh, uh, followed and this uh, exercise is the same as uh, uh, the previous studies, as uh, in U- the U.S., and uh, the result is uh, almost uh, similar to uh, similar with the uh, uh, U.S. Uh, the result, the uh, most of the uh, task intensity, most, most of the intensity of, uh, most of the task intensity depends on the occupation itself. Occupation itself. Because uh, the R square, uh li- rise when when we control for the occupation, uh, so yes, so, and uh, yeah, we 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 will we have to further the to further the uh, look for the, another determinant of the yeah task intensity. Thank you very much. <coughs> Thank you. If, is there another
0: question or comment? Um, if not, then I'd like to invite
4: Jonathan Cave for his presentation. He will, he will not use slides if I know well. Yes, I don't trust the technology. No, no, no not required. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <coughs> because I think we've already seen some very good and very useful slides that really helped to set a number of empirical issues into into focus. I'm going to give a view from a slightly different perspective. I'm, I'm a theorist by training. And so what interests me are the sort of hidden explanations behind a lot of the phenomena that we see. Because I think very often with policy, we see something, we interpret it according to existing theory, and we make a policy intervention according to that theory. And that kind of endogeneity does produce certain unforeseen consequences. So the first thing I want to draw attention to is that I think there is a sense in which the face of labor itself, the face of employment and people's engagement in paid work, no longer quite serves the functions that we've traditionally associated with it. Among the challenges about which we've already heard are, for example, unemployment. Not simply high levels of unemployment, but unemployment and underemployment, by which I mean people being used in occupations that don't require or reward their input or their skills, and therefore don't motivate them to form human capital and relationships, is worse, at the beginning and the end of the age distribution and those boundaries of between economic activity and under activity are creeping in towards the center. And this is a real problem. We can see it in Europe, certainly in the southern European countries, where the younger generations are systematically underemployed, but also in the older generations where towards the end of a person's working life, the working life is being prolonged by the collapse of public expenditure systems. So we keep people in work because we can't afford to keep them in old age. And it works to a degree because their utilization of health care services and other things that are socially expensive goes up when they retire not when they become old and as people's life expectancy increases the period of decrepitude before death has not been increasing proportionately. So if you can keep them active, keep them in work, keep me active, keep me in work, uh, then I won't cost you so much. Another aspect of this is the change not merely in the quantity of employment but in the quality of employment. Underemployment is part of this. Human capital, unlike physical capital, depreciates if it is not used. Other kinds of capital depreciate if they are used. And if we treat them as interchangeable, we need to take that somewhat into account. But in particular, when I say the quality of jobs, what I mean is your ability to contribute sensibly, uh, for example, in innovation, but also to have security in your employment. And the reason why that matters is that the employment relationship is not simply a matter of bringing a labor input to a productive process. It carries many other things. Not only the creation of value, but the distribution of value. The distribution of value through wages, even more than redistributive tax policy, is how we make everybody participate in the economic growth of areas. And if people are unemployed, they move from being a contributor or at least a claimant to stuff that hasn't first passed through government to being something that's identified as a social cost. More than that, it is a vehicle for the distribution of what might be considered public services. In economies like the United States, the key thing you get from a job is not a wage, but is health insurance or at least before the passage of the Affordable Care Act, which also means that people's labor mobility is reduced because when you change jobs, anything that is wrong with you becomes an uncovered pre-existing condition. So just as Andrew Oswald and Danny Blanchflower found with home ownership, these things that reduce labor mobility from place to place, from job to job, from employer to employer, reduce happiness and reduce efficiency and effectiveness because labor cannot then move to its most efficient occupations, which is what labor markets require. It also provides social standing. We have seen, particularly in the depths of the recession, the social position of those who are not seen to be contributing deteriorate quite markedly, and in countries like the United States, this polarization has reached the point of generating actual violent forms of confrontation and social cost. It is also, the last thing I'll say about this, something that Marx reminded us of a very, very long time ago, that for many people, work is their principal contact with reality, by which he meant that in the workplace environment, you see other people in a position like unto your own, and you recognize that your problems are not necessarily your problems, and that there are ways of addressing them, either through organized labor or through political means or something else. Now technology comes into this because if we become isolated from each other through the decentralization of work and its measurement through the performance of routine tasks scored against each other, that socially reformative, self-governing process is short-circuited. And so one would need to be a little bit concerned about this. Now there are various explanations for why we've gotten, found it so difficult to distribute wealth to the great bulk of the people and I think what we just heard about the polarization, the increasing polarization not only between skill classes but within skill classes which is entirely consistent with sort of network externality effects where if one or two people can do the entire job, one or two people will win, and unless you make sure that everyone else gets a piece of that, they will opt out and you won't necessarily get the best even out of the ones who do win. So there are some explanations which are cyclical, that unemployment of course goes up and down as the economy goes up and down. But here I think the relative rate of adjustment is the critical point that if we move people in and out of jobs less quickly than we move financial capital in and out of jobs, the operation of the cycle will create a ratchet effect that drives out the use of actual human physical labor. So I think there's a certain kind of hmm, complex system aspect to this that's quite obvious. There's also stagnation and secular stagnation, and that's been uh, magnificently addressed by Yuichi. I won't say anything more about it. There is, however, this question of displacement. When Brynjolfsson looked at this stuff about two or three years ago, he said, no, no, there's no technological displacement going on at all. But that was before things like artificial intelligence and machine learning. It was before algorithms found a role on the boards of directors of major venture capital organizations. Uh, It's not simply routine, but routine is a large part of this because the performance of routine tasks bears on the quality of work. But if we have machines that can now do the non-routine tasks and can explore the change in those tasks, then I think we have a, a real challenge that we need to address. And Hopefully, we'll be able to discuss some of that. There are also demographic changes. And of course, you know, in my generation, we had the baby boom. So when we were all young, we thought that the world was young and there would be jobs there. And we could study anything at all. And that stored up a certain kind of flexibility and resilience that I don't see in my university students today. They prepare to become quants in the city, I do financial economics, and if they can't get those jobs, and many of them can't, or if the quants get squeezed out uh, by algo trading or whatever other reason, (coughs) or they find that the culture of life in those occupations is not what they hoped, they are not able to switch to other occupations. When I found that it wasn't a good idea to go to medical school after four years of preparation, I heaved a great sigh of relief. I thought, oh good, I've had all the enjoyment out of this, I can do something else. So I think that the, the putty clay aspect of human capital is something else we need to bear in mind. Now we do spend a lot of time trying to give people ICT skills, that's largely a waste of time. Most people coming to university at least and going through secondary school have these skills. Learning how to use those skills, taking due account of the environment in which people acquired them, that is, I think, a more fundamental challenge. Now, there are other things. Um, We have these generational effects. Uh, The current generation, the millennials, for example, don't engage with the older generations in the same way as previous generations do. They don't necessarily see, trust us, to look out for their interests and prepare a role for them. So it may be that rather than trying to force today's young people into yesterday's jobs or yesterday's concept of what a job is, we might want to give them a little space to invent something or find out ways to capture some of the value they create through their non-commercial activity. Now other things have happened which have more strongly technological flavor. Uh, We've heard mention already of things like Uber. There is a notion that instead of having jobs in that stable relationship, we have what has been called the gig economy, where you move from small engagement to small engagement. And that does have, for certain people in certain periods of time, a tremendously beneficial effect. It gives them a kind of freedom, particularly if the jobs they're doing are not rewarding or are not secure. But you exchange one kind of insecurity for another, and the evidence that we now have from people engaged in things like TaskRabbit and, and Uber and so on and so forth is that there there is a kind of Stakhanovism that takes place. Stakhanovism, for those of you who are too young to remember it, was a Soviet scheme in which there was a quota for workplace productivity. And if you achieved this quota as an individual, you were rewarded. You got a nice transitory award. And then what you had achieved became the quota for the next period. So gradually, people were set against each other. The conditions of life were driven down, and the measured productivity of the employment was driven up. Of course, the actual productivity, either in welfare terms or in whole, uh, whole industry or whole firm terms, was driven down because of the increasingly stressful nature of the uh, occupation. But that has been facilitated by these technologies, and if we simply endorse the technologies because they improve the immediate bottom line of the firms involved, um, then we see that there are certain strains that can take place. Now, Other things that I want briefly to mention. (coughs) One of them is complexity. These are complex systems. Uh, Labor markets are complex systems. Complex systems have certain characteristics uh, which I won't go into, but two of the characteristics that are worth mentioning, one of them is emergence, that they have systemic behaviors, behaviors at one level, whether it's the whole economy level or the individual level, that have their source in other levels and cannot be modeled. So microfounding macro-behavior of labor markets is probably a mug's game. Emergent behavior is defined as behavior that cannot be anticipated. In other words, there isn't a unique equilibrium, But it can be predicted if you have enough information. But typically, with these changes in in labor conditions, we don't have enough or the right kind of information. And in fact, if you think about what happens in a system where you tighten up the linkages between different parts of the system, the first thing that happens is that nice monotone relationships become branched and multiple equilibria creep in. As the linkages tighten still further, the things become indeterminate, stably indeterminate. It doesn't mean you can't make predictions, but the predictions are going to be more and more approximate. And the lesson for policy is, if there is not going to be a single consequence of what you do, then just trying something and learning to see what happens won't work. You need to make different kinds of policies, policies that are more tolerant, policies that are more approximate, policies that are more statements of value. And that's just a a technical thing. The other thing is that in terms of innovation, um, I've already indicated earlier that I think that by framing innovation as invention and the domain of particular people, that we do do some violence to the way in which value is created and captured. Now, the fact is that many of the large organizations that bestride the world like a colossus at the moment, let's call them GAFA for want of anything else, didn't start life as large, ugly corporations designed to grind down their workers and steal all our private data. Rather, they started as social enterprises, people kicking an idea around to see what would happen. But the scaling up and the exposure of these things, not only to markets, but to multiple jurisdictions of regulation and the inevitable requirement to balance those off against each other, has created a kind of transformation in them and it may be that at a certain point in their life cycle it's necessary to sort of chop them off and I do want to raise a chapeau to the um, DG competition in this respect in terms of the things that are being done to kind of rebalance this particularly as regards tax payments but that's another issue. Now another thing that I'd already slightly mentioned that has to do with innovation is the difference between hard and soft innovation or individual and collective innovation. Business model innovation trumps, sorry, uh, overcomes um, (laughs) technological innovation. It's the soft technologies that are the most important. If you think about things like texting, for example, that was a step backward. But its social impact, its economic impact, was a huge leap forward. But it was only when we had this slightly better thing that we could realize how to use something like SMS-type systems. The same is true for these networks like the Sigfox network that is an alternative to the Internet for very small, low-bandwidth messages. Once you have something that doesn't have to compete with downloaded videos and so on, you find all kinds of interesting ways of, of using that sort of thing. Now, Europe in this respect has not had a terribly glowing uh, track record. It hasn't done terribly well. It's done okay in using business model innovations that come from other places, but it hasn't been very good at producing them. So it's produced the technological innovations and hasn't been able to use them. It hasn't produced the soft innovations, but has been able to use them. There's clearly something there that could be aligned uh, slightly better. A final thing I want to say a bit about is policy. Labor is a very important political domain for policy. And we have a lot of crash barrier type of policies. So when I I see the results, for example, about what happens to wages at the upper end and the bottom end, the upper end I can understand through positive feedback loops and rent-seeking and winner-takes-all dynamics. The bottom end, it seems slightly more puzzling, except that we have minimum wage policies because employment is a way of delivering living standards. And when you raise minimum wages, there's what's called a ripple effect because if the business model or the labor market model depends on wage differentials, then when the bottom comes up, they go up. And there is a degree of uplift that takes place. But that only happens through substitutable classes of labor. So once you get to a certain level of task complexity, you're talking about a different world. And that ripple effect wears out. And so that hollowing out of the middle is sort of a natural, it's exacerbated by policy final thing is entrepreneurial culture. We are talking about innovation. Entrepreneurship is very important, and many, many places have invested quite a lot in it. But we don't know what it is. We don't know how to teach it. It may emerge from our schools, but often as a kind of unintended byproduct. And I would just raise a cautionary flag that if we encourage people to start business as an alternative to finding a job, we may find that the the scaling up effects and the selection bias kind of crush what we're trying to do. There are plenty of other things I could talk about, but that's probably more than my share of time, so I'll shut up at this point.
0: Uh, Thank you, Jonathan, so much for this fantastic overview of of various issues and and policy. I mean, I can't just ask one more question, and, and it's related to education. So how do you think the current education systems in Europe should be redesigned, reformed, changed to, to more be supportive of, of the challenges coming
4: from, from technological change? As an economist, this is a very uncomfortable question for us because we get criticized all the time for teaching obsolete paradigms in an obsolete fashion. And I think that's absolutely true. I run the mathematics and economics joint degree course at at Warwick University, so I'm between economics and mathematics. Coding in in particular, not econometrics, because we have packages for that. But the ability, for example, to put together simulations, uh, agent-based simulation models and so on, these are absolutely vital. My son now works for something called the Open Data Institute. And he began by doing sort of policy wonk stuff and training stuff. But when he started coding these things, his learning transformed to an entirely different paradigm. So I think in that sense, I'm not saying we eliminate departments, but I am saying that the use of skills that are reusable skills, like coding skills, in the context of learning specific disciplinary topics can be quite transformative. That's a kind of minor thing. There's something that operates at the secondary and primary level, which is to give expression to entrepreneurial activity. And when people, I mean, we now have programs that say to students, come up with a business model, come up with an idea, come up with a website or something like that. They get a mark, and then they go sit on the teacher's shelf. That is a real problem. And if those things could find expression through seeding for ventures among young students, we used to have this in America when I was growing up. And it did kind of work. Not because it produces the businesses of the future, but it produces resilience and an appreciation for risk-taking that goes along with the educational experience. So that that doesn't become a protected environment from which you graduate into a world which is anything but protected. Um.
0: Sounds sounds very good, thank you very much. Now, so let me open the floor now. And um, I mean, we have not much time, but we still have some time. So feel free to give any comments, questions to to Jonathan or any any other speakers. Yes, please. Uh,
6: I'd like to uh, add an an additional concept. What do you think of this um, virtual development center or way to... Because the issue of knowledge management and knowledge transfer from the ed- ed- educational system is uh, spread out and diffused in the community, so um, having the academic professor or the people teaching and uh, trying to educate in different skills, having also some of the control over the uh, transfer, outside the university system is important because uh, then uh, you can help to teach the community and not only the uh, people inside the institution. Now, it challenged the institution itself, but it helped with avoiding that the skills disappeared because if you spread it totally in the community, then it lowered the skills of the people who were educated in the system.
0: We may comment, uh, collect a few, few questions or, or comments. But if maybe if other people speaking, can you can
4: you can you respond? Could you please
0: switch off of the mic because it will be.
4: <coughs> okay, It'd be, it's a shame they don't have that in the U.S. presidential debates. These mics that switch off when another one switches on, um, as we will undoubtedly see on Monday evening, or. or Thursday morning. I think that's absolutely correct. I think that teaching in the community, we get it through widening participation activities, where the schools and the universities reach out to groups that haven't necessarily been educated before. But that, of course, is only for the children and is designed to feed them into that relatively closed system. Two other aspects of this are the way in which it is now being proposed that businesses, in particular small businesses, participate in the university activity and the school activity, both through curricular design and through the delivery of teaching. And of course, once you have that contact, they then take it back to the communities. But as part of the widening participation agenda at the secondary school level, teaching or conducting knowledge capture and exchange and discussion activities in a wider context is increasingly favored, not just by the educational establishment, but also by the policy establishment. We did a project on cyber trust and cyber crime, and it was a project for the government, a kind of foresight project. At the end of that, the Royal Society said, let's take this show on the road, and that's in fact what we did. We went around from city to city, and held, we didn't present our findings and say, oh wow, isn't this great? We just sort of, kick the ideas around and it was really quite amazing. Had we done the study by going first to, the, to create this environment in which people could contribute their own knowledge and not simply absorb what was pushed at them, we would have had a much better study, but it was early times. So I think that the removing the elite status or the uh, let's say, the the status of universities as delivering either a package of skills or a certification that your brain is of a given quality, I think that democratizing that and opening it up, as with any other aspect of innovation and labor, would be beneficial. Thank you. Um, let, let me have
0: one more question to you um, related to one, one of the comments you, you made in the in, in earlier inter- intervention on underemployment. So if I understood you correctly, you said that underemployment is widespread for the young and for the old. Yep. For the young, I can understand relatively well why, why it happens, but for the old, I was a bit puzzled. I don't know if I got correctly, but you said that one reason for underemployment of the old is, is healthcare costs, so people, Get sicker when they retire, and not when they get older. And therefore, there is a, you know, <clears throat> intention from the government to keep people employed for longer, so that so that uh, healthcare costs are lower. So, I first, my first question, whether I understood this correctly, but my, my second question is that, is that even if this is a can be a motive from the side of the government, uh, it cannot be a motive from the side of the companies who are actually employing people. And, you know, if they have older generations who are not you know skilled enough uh, why did just simply lay them off uh, or if they are skilled enough and they need them why they, why why they do not get jobs which are you know comparable to their to their knowledge and skills so why, why there is an un- underemployment from the perspective of companies
4: Thanks. I'm, I'm glad you asked that because I'd hope we could revisit this. In the empirical results, I was struck by the fact that the squared term on experience was exactly zero straight across the board, right? There is no nonlinear feedback effect. So it may be that due to the way wage progressions work, that older workers get paid a bit more. Their productivity doesn't necessarily increase because they're not used in a way that would capture and then reuse the lessons of that experience over the rest of the workforce. So the incentives to capture new knowledge have been eroded. The consequent and there's perfectly good reasons for that. Younger workers are cheaper, and younger workers have more recent technological skills. So particularly in those occupations where technological change is important, the value of older workers goes down. And yet, the question is, why don't these people simply get fired? Part of the reason is that there are legal constraints. There are are ageism constraints. And as the pressures on public expenditure push up the legal retirement age, or as in the case of universities, a year and a half ago I received an email saying, you know that retirement age? Well, you can forget about it. It doesn't exist anymore. And you can work until you drop. And, of course, the government is perfectly happy with that because someone else is paying the bill. The firms cannot then fire people without constructive dismissal types of lawsuits. But there is another thing, which is that a lot of the wage costs are kind of occupationally or role-driven. And although you may not be able to wholly change the occupation of a person, you can change their role within their occupational sector into one that has a much lower profile. The same thing happens with women when they re-engage with the workforce. They're on much lower trajectories and so there is a kind of substitution effect that goes on. So they're underemployed because their unique contribution to the enterprise in terms of the enterprise knowledge capital is not captured uh, because there is no payoff to capturing it, particularly in high tech industries, and particularly not the more the young get squeezed so that there's probably a close connection. Um, Yeah, so those are my sort of beliefs about that, and I I was pleased to see please, no, not really. Um, Intrigued to see that there was empirical confirmation of that. Um, The other thing is that the nature of retirement policies may also have something to do with this. That particularly when you have industry, it'd be interesting to expand the regression to include whether these are defined benefit or defined contribution schemes. Because we know that retirement liabilities are a big weight on firms. And so if you have a defined benefit scheme and you can keep people on a low-wage trajectory, then you don't have to pay them as much because they ain't going to be drawing it as long if they drop dead the moment they retire. Um, And you're not paying them that much more on a per-year basis because their wages have not increased. They've sort of tapered off. And so it is probably better to do that than get rid of them earlier Um, because they'll then be... It's like the thing about why... Alcohol and tobacco has such very different social costs, right? That the people who smoke tobacco have very productive lives and then die pretty promptly after they retire. The alcoholics either die early and deprive of us of their human capital or they live a very long time and die very expensive deaths. So it's much more expensive. <laughs> <laughs>
0: interesting, interesting comment at the end. Now, would the other speakers would like to add a few closing remarks?
1: Um, if you wish, please. So um, I, it was great to hear the presentations and the comments. It was uh, really interesting. Uh, two comments. Uh, one on uh, gig economy. Um, clearly, it's something that refers to the future and uh, future investments. Uh, but uh, one important uh, issue is how to regulate gig economy. And uh, what do we see here is that in different markets, in different business models, that uh, the impact of these uh, new technologies uh, is uh, different to the traditional players, Um, then uh, we have different effects. For example, um, it was already mentioned Uber and taxi. Is it an issue of providing a better regulatory uh, framework for Uber and how it operates? Of course, there are issues like insurance, employment. Uh, but uh, um, I think the main issue here is to uh, underline that the interaction of these technologies with the traditional players, it is also an opportunity to revise the regulation applied for uh, conventional technologies in order to incentivize firms to invest in new technologies, to introduce them to this digital market. For the taxes, for example, we have regulation that uh, constrains the operators to provide a particular price and also the number of licenses is fixed. What is the point to have this when a new competitor arrived in the market? So we need to... Uh, The authorities need to be innovative in terms of regulatory framework by adopting a more forward-looking approach by taking uh, into account the fact that these technologies have arrived. And it is not a question whether we will ban them or not. The question is how we can adjust to a new framework so that um, everyone will be benefited by that and consumers should be in the centre. The, the second point I wanted to make was about the um, education, which is clearly uh, an issue when you are talking about uh, this uh, technology revolution and the way we'll adjust uh, educational methods out of that. Uh, I would like to say that what we observe now in Europe especially is that uh, education is a first stage of internal migration, especially from the South to Central Europe and by having that what we can end up in the future is a, a europe or two of two or three speeds which will make coordination much more difficult will make co- collaboration much more difficult and will cl- create further uh, frictions as we move in the future so we have talked. We have talked in many different environments and fields about harmonisation, about uh, further uh, coordination on efforts. But for me, the first priority is to have this coordination of efforts in education by joint educational problems, uh, programs by bringing uh, uh, students in uh, countries that they are relatively more poor, uh, poorer than the others, in touch with these technologies to try in this way to close the gap. Thank you.
0: Thank
3: you very much. Um, Yoshi would you like yeah some, some yeah, yeah. It's my pleasure to be here. So because we can calculate empirical studies using European countries' data, but it's very difficult how to how to interpret or how to understand because many many Japanese people do not have enough European countries' information. So. So, so again, many thanks for this conference, and maybe it's very fruitful for us and very innovative. Thanks. Thank you
0: very
5: much. Yukami, please. Yes, thank you very much. And uh, yes, uh, in this presentation, today's presentation, I uh, mainly focus on the the outcome of the uh, the technological change on the worker's side, but. Uh, uh, of course, it is important to uh, consider the policy um, response and to the change of the technological change of, and the impact of the worker side, and uh, um, yes, uh, I'd like to, uh, to the, um, consider more the uh, labor market policies, especially active labor market policies, is very important, become more important, important to the in the era of rapid um, technological changes. Thank you
0: very much for uh, attending my... Yes, thank you. Thank you very much, and we are just on time. So, so would you like a few? No, okay. So we are, we are just on time. Um, my only job now is to thank all the four speakers for their very great and interesting contributions and for all of you for participating in this debate. So there is a lunch which will be served uh, in the in the room uh, where also the breakfast was served, and we will start at two with the with the policy panel, uh, yeah, from two to three fifteen. So thank you and see you in an hour.